0: It's time for You Heard It Here, the official podcast of Bucknell University Athletics. Get to know student-athletes, coaches, and more bison. Now, here's your host, Doug Birdsong.
1: Welcome to this edition of the You Heard It Here podcast. As always, it's the podcast devoted strictly to Bucknell University Athletics. We're going to start this edition of the podcast by speaking to Bucknell's Director of Athletics and Recreation, Jermaine Truax, Jermaine, thank you very much for joining us today.
0: Hi Doug, good to be with you as uh, always. Looking forward to our, our conversation. As uh, as you know, we're we're under way here on campus, and uh, I know we have a lot to, to get into. But uh, good to be with you, uh, and we're we're here on campus, and that that's exciting. And I know we'll get into that.
1: I know that I am working from home because of the socially distancing, but uh, there are times when I make it back onto campus. You're on campus nearly every day, and a few other folks are on campus nearly every day. But the big question right now, I have to ask you, with all this stuff going on with the virus and so forth, how are you and your family during these kind of difficult times?
0: Family is uh, doing well. Thanks for for asking. Uh, you know, if there's a silver lining in, in all of this, you know, I've had an opportunity to, to spend uh, more time with my family uh, than maybe uh, any point in, in history. I mean, as you know, uh, athletics and particularly being the athletic director, it's a significant time commitment. Uh, it's certainly a, a lifestyle and that may be a cliche, but, you know, when we're when we're going and we're underway, it, it really is seven days a week, nights, weekends, holidays and so the, the last several months, uh, obviously, I uh, didn't want a, a worldwide uh, pandemic uh, to be able to um, uh, spend additional time with my, my family. And obviously, it's been so tragic for, for many of people, uh, you know, I think 190,000 lives lost, uh, just very difficult times for for many families. But, you know, my family is, is doing well. Um, again, we've had an opportunity to spend uh, a lot of time together. I set my my oldest daughter off to, to college and so she wants to be a dental hygienist so she's a freshman now and excited and my seven-year-old daughter just started school here last week and uh, my three-year-old is uh, he doesn't know any better uh, and so it's been they've been good overall and, and i've been been good as well
1: oh that's awesome well obviously you came to bucknell back a couple of years ago july of 2018 but at that time you probably had no idea And I'm sure nobody had any idea in athletics and recreation around the country that they would have to lead a department through a pandemic, no games going on. I mean, that's a huge change, as you said. It gives you more time with your family, but it is completely different than what any of us are used to, Jermaine. How have you been able to adapt on the professional side of things?
0: Well, if experience is the, the best teacher, uh, I'm getting one of the, the best lessons in, in leadership you could possibly have. Uh, and so, no, I don't think anybody, uh, whether in athletics or otherwise, anticipated being in a, a worldwide uh, pandemic. Uh, what's unique is, is you know, I tell people I, I, I haven't even seen everything here at Bucknell uh, for two cycles. Uh, I, I came here in 2018. I saw everything for kind of one full cycle, spent a lot of time listening and learning and trying to understand the place and the culture and people uh, year two started and we were getting strategic planning uh, underway and starting to define what we're going to look like over the next five years or so. And in year two, got a little bit over halfway through uh, and then boom, where we find ourselves in our worldwide pandemic uh, we end up canceling the spring sports as, as we know, uh, everybody gets sent home, uh, and really, the country, most of the, the country, finds itself in a in a lockdown. And so, trying to lead through all of that has been certainly challenging. Probably the biggest challenge being just the the uncertainty. And, and you rewind back to to March, every day, just you know, spending hours uh, upon hours with university uh, leadership in terms of not only what's happening in athletics, but what are we doing on campus. Uh, how do we get kids home safely? Uh, what does it all look like? We just didn't have those answers, right? And so, uh, and it was changing. Forget daily; it was changing by the hour. We were creating policies and, you know, in athletics and on campus that we needed to to change in, in real time. So that was certainly a challenge. You know, in leadership positions, we're often presented with a menu of options. Uh, and of those menu of options, usually by the time it gets to us, there's uh, they're all difficult. There's not easy ones. Um, but the challenge here is just one of those options always was uncertainty. Uh, and so that's what's been, I think, probably the most difficult part is we just we just did not know. Uh, and we sit here in September. Uh, we've certainly made some progress, but in many ways, we're, we're as uncertain now uh, as we were then. Uh, but we've made some advancements with testing. We have a better hold on kind of the virus and what it's about as a country. Uh, Fortunately, we're seeing some downward trajectory as far as that goes. Uh, But no, it's been pretty fascinating where, again, you'd like to see things for at least two full cycles. I always tell people it takes really at least two, but really three years to get a really good uh, understanding and be able to set the the direction uh, for under the department uh, but I'm, I'm in one and a half cycles by way of that goes but um, the, the world pi- worldwide pandemic and, and leading in that has uh, added uh, some additional years um, of experience uh, that i never anticipated uh, of doing
1: you and and there could that could be the case really Jermaine, for an athletic director who has been on the job 20 or 30 years at a school couldn't it
0: you know, no question about it. Uh, and so I think maybe some who have been uh, doing it 10, 15 years were were part of the swine flu. Uh, and so obviously there was some, I know even here, we, we did some planning for, for that, what that might look like. And so I think some may have had at least a little bit of you know, emergency planning by way of a potential pandemic. Uh, our response as a country was different than than it is now, and so certainly our, our response as universities and athletic leaders is different. uh mean, for a variety of reasons, but um, I don't, I don't know. Uh, again, any athletic director who has found themselves in a, a worldwide pandemic where we've shut down sports and sent student athletes home in the, the spring, and we're very concerned, and you know, we're still dealing with it in the fall, where a lot of fall sports have been uh, postponed as well. And so, yeah, whether you're whether you're entering year three, like I am, um, or you're entering year 20, uh, this is new for everyone. And we're, we're trying to figure it out a day at a time. Uh, there's no question about that. And so having good people to rely on is critically important. And I have a good team here to help manage a, a lot of this with me. Um, but it's certainly been a, a leadership challenge.
1: No doubt about it. You mentioned about the athletic side of things. What about the university as a whole, Bucknell as a whole, Jermaine? Where do you feel like things have gone over these first four or five weeks of classes on campus as everybody is trying to, faculty, staff, athletics, etc., deal with the virus? How do you think things have come along on campus in particular?
0: I think it's been absolutely tremendous, uh, quite honestly. Um, Obviously, we know that it's tenuous. We know that uh, it could change at any moment. Uh, but we also have to, in part, recognize uh, all the good work that we've done to, to get to this point. Uh, and so starting with President Brodman and his leadership and kind of the senior leadership team of the, the university, uh, we call it OMG here, but that's really the, the president's cabinet that, that I'm on. Uh, but starting with the, the number of tests before we even return back to campus. Uh, to my knowledge, we were the only ones who required uh, two negative tests prior to coming to campus. We do frequent and sequential testing for our student population, staff, faculty, so regular testing. We all know how critical the, the testing component uh, is. Uh, in terms of trying to mitigate the the spread of the virus. Uh, We have contact tracing uh, set up as well. Uh, I'll I'll throw a plug for our athletic department. Uh, Much of the contract tracers on campus are uh, are folks in athletics. We're doing a a tremendous job. Uh, Fortunately, we haven't had a lot of uh, positive cases uh, thus far, so uh, that's been tremendous. And so uh, starting with how we return folks back to to campus to – uh, really, everyone taking it seriously as they should. Uh, we're not perfect, uh, but uh, largely we we're have good compliance with face masks, social distancing, all the things that uh, we've put out there, uh, the safety guidelines, uh, again, largely being followed. And so kudos to the campus community, including students, faculty, staff, uh, doing their part and seeing it through. Again, we're not perfect. Uh, things are happening. so. Uh, no denying that piece, but I think as a, as a whole, uh, the students were uh, pretty uh, clear in that they wanted to come back here and get this tremendous education uh, from our, our terrific faculty, and so uh, we've afforded them that opportunity, and so, so far, so good, uh, but yeah, just really good leadership from, from the top on down, uh, and again, it can change at any moment, but you know, it's a little bit like the NBA bubble. If we can get them here and we know everybody's negative uh, in our county, Union County, there haven't been um, tremendously large number of cases and certainly I think maybe only one or so uh, death to date and that may have changed. But uh, we had a low positivity rate in our area and then we bring everybody back uh, with two negative tests. Uh, we know kind of like that NBA bubble, if you can get folks here that are negative, Um, That certainly increases our our likelihood, but really kudos to to everyone involved. Um, So a a moment of celebration for sure, um, because a lot of folks haven't made it this far, uh, but we can't let our guard down. Um, Again, it could end at any moment. So we need to continue to be vigilant and uh, following all the safety protocols, um, continue to reduce density uh, where possible uh, and reduce occupancy and all those various things that we know it will take to, to make it through. So, so far so good. Uh, we just can't let our guard down though. We, we need to continue to be uh, diligent uh, to, to make it to uh, November and get through the semester.
1: That's exactly right. And you know, the Patriot League, Jermaine, decided earlier this summer to postpone fall sports. Um, But of course, as you slowly work things in, there are transition periods and the athletic department has a transition period as well with its student athletes. It's called a reassociation plan. Is there an update that you might be able to give us on how things are going and maybe how the next few weeks or maybe a month and a half might look down
0: the road? Sure, and I'll start with just coming back for our resocialization plan, which was uh, really the NCAA. Um, they utilized an advisory panel from uh, some of the best medical minds in the, the country, including professors, uh, medical doctors of infectious disease, uh, surgeon generals, to really develop a, a plan that says, okay, if you're going to return back to sports, what might it look like? So this independent advisory board. And so we've mirrored um, our return to, to sports and play based off of uh, that medical advice in conjunction with our state and, and local uh, guidance and then working with our medical uh, professionals here on campus and our partnership uh, with Geyser, certainly, to, to put all of this together. To We know we can't get to zero risk, but how do we mitigate uh, risk? And so... That's, that's been the foundation of our, our plan. Uh, and then with our return back to campus, what I said was, is we're not going to do anything for uh, the first several weeks. Let's get through Labor Day. Uh, there's so many other things going on in campus right now. The focus for our student athletes just needs to be on transitioning back to the campus community, figuring out the, the new normal obviously the academics come first. So figuring out your classroom, what does that look like? Uh, some have a combination of online, some have in person. And so there's just all these other elements. Um, and so I said, Let, we're not going to do anything until after Labor Day, even though our, our plans are set. So let's take it slow. Uh, obviously with no competition, uh, we didn't have that uh, to, to prepare for. So that made it a, a little easier, though I know our, our student athletes and coaches were we're itching to get out of there, uh, get out there and participate. So not easy from that lens, but, you know, easier to, to slow down a, a little bit. And so we made it to Labor Day and uh, we have some programs and it's a phased in re- uh, approach. And so uh, not all teams were were going on that first day one after Labor Day. We had a couple teams going, starting very, very slow, no No real practices, just small group sessions, face masks, social distancing, do things outside uh, where possible. And then it'll just be a slow ramp up. And so some have now, some of those programs that started in the week one are now transitioning to week two. Others are starting their week one. So it'll be, uh, you know, another four to six weeks before there's anything that approximates like a true full. Type of practice because um, there's that phase in it's really again that four to six weeks in part defined by that resocialization plan. Uh, we know that there are some high, moderate, and low risk sports in terms of transmission. So if you take a, a sport like tennis, that's that's considered a, a low risk because you're you're generally outside. Uh, it's easy to social distance, right? It's built into that. That's different than say uh, women's soccer. So we, based upon where you fit in that category, we've modified um, different exercises and, and workouts uh, to account for kind of where you, you fit in terms of the, the risk category of, of transmission. And so, uh, so far so good. It, it's early in our our process. Uh, we didn't have any hiccups in that, that first week. Uh, we'll continue to again. You know, be smart, take it slow. Uh, we don't want any outbreaks on any teams and our student athletes don't want it uh, either. Uh, I mean, think about it. If you pick a pick a team, say men's basketball. It isn't just if someone were to test positive, it isn't just that individual. You know, there's some quarantine protocols uh, as well. If there was. Um, if you're in close contact for, you know, more than 15 minutes, or if you're not wearing your face mask. And so uh, you can get a whole team shut down pretty quickly just because of the quarantine protocol. So again, we need to be very cautious about how uh, we're approaching it. Uh, And so, so far so good. We'll continue to take it slow. I'd rather do it on campus though, because we know that uh, we can mitigate risk better when they're, and then we're with us following our safety protocols as opposed to, you know, trying to work out on their own, uh, because, again, they're, they're young people and other folks are working out. They'll want to work out, but we'd rather have them in what we call our bubble uh, to keep them uh, safe and following protocols so that we can uh, hopefully you know, get back to a return to play here.
1: Well, you mentioned so far so good. What about the conversations that you've had with the coaches and the student athletes? I mean, you kind of alluded to it a moment ago, Jermaine, it seems as if everybody's on the same page trying to transition back to play as safely as possible. Would that be an accurate description?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, some of what I just shared with you, I've certainly shared with uh, the coaches as, as well. Again, they're, they're anxious, uh, you know, coaches, student athletes, they're Division One coaches, they're Division One student athletes. They they want to play. They want to participate. They want to practice. Um, and I, I tell people this all, all the time. While there are no absolutes, um, our students aren't here you know, solely for uh, athletics purposes. Uh, but I can promise you that they wouldn't be here if we didn't have athletics. Right. And so uh, it's a big part of their lives. It's a big part of who they are. It's a big part of their identity and they they want to get at it, get after it. So when you take that away, uh, it's certainly difficult, but they're smart and they recognize kind of what's at stake uh, in terms of uh, competitions. So that's where it's just a slow ramp up. We actually had a a good meeting with uh, our head coaches and our team leaders, whether you're a captain or otherwise identified leader on your team, had that with uh, my senior staff here our head coaches and those team leaders about what what this might look like. Let's hold each other accountable. Uh, let's do all the things that we need to do uh, that are necessary, uh, not only when you're with us and in our environment, but also uh, when you're uh, not with us, right? Uh, and so if you look across the country, almost all of the, the outbreaks are, that are happening and are occurring aren't necessarily within the athletics context. Uh, a lot of it is, is okay, You've done your mitigation while you're there, but then you maybe you you go home and you let your guard down, or maybe you go to a party and you don't have a face mask on, and then you get it, and then you bring it back to a team. Uh, that's almost always how it's happening. So uh, we we had good conversations about uh, not only doing it right when you're you're with us and with athletics, but making sure that that extends when you're, you're not uh, within the, the bubble of athletics. Uh, so we know you're going to do it right when you're with us, but Make sure you continue that effort and be uh, diligent and vigilant about all of this. Uh, you just can't let your guard down. And so we've had a number of good conversations about that. Um, and so thought that was good on the, the front end. And now it's more of let's continue those conversations. Let's not let our guard down. Let's get it. We might be outside. It might be hot. Um, but we still need to do the proper mitigation if we're going to make it. Um, because, again, it isn't just the one or two people who um, potentially get the virus. If that happens, it could shut down a whole whole team because of our contact tracing. Uh, and so them understanding that, I think, was uh, important and will continue to be important. But um, it, it's better now because, again, they've started to, to ramp up. And so that's been good. I think it was hard for them, honestly, these first several weeks of not being able to do much other than voluntary workouts. But now that we're in our slow ramp up phase, I think those juices and energy start starting to flow.
1: As of right now, I guess the the fall sports in the Patriot League, at least involving Patriot League, and then, of course, you have kind of a quasi-winter sport with wrestling. That's in the EIWA. But you also have men's water polo, which is um, outside of the Patriot League parameters. but. It it appears as of right now, I guess, Jermaine, those sports are technically right now hopefully going to be pushed to the spring and play games in the spring.
0: So all the the fall sports by NCAA definition postponed with hopefully a target date for, you know, sometime in the spring. Again, it will be largely driven by, you know, the virus and can we safely and effectively uh, return uh, to competition Uh, the good news is is that uh, we're going to have even more data so hopefully we're closer to a vaccine uh, that will solve really all of this Um, but if not we we have real data because the the reality of it is is there's a number of uh, institutions that have made the decision to participate uh, this fall across sports uh, not only in college but also in high school Uh, we know the pros are going but Uh, our reference point being more college uh, and then looking at even potentially what's going on in high school. Uh, So I say that to say, uh, we'll get a pretty good sense of how other institutions were able to navigate it. Uh, Was it successful? Was it not successful? Um, Were they able to manage a schedule? How many games had to be canceled? We'll, We'll be able to evaluate all that. And also, um, what, what was the risk, right? And so uh, the data tells us now that young people obviously are at a much lower risk, um, but that doesn't mean they can't get sick. Uh, we know there are some that are testing positive. Uh, and so all of those different things will be really uh, informative as we, we look at you know potential spring. But then we have the winter sports. And really, regardless of conference affiliation, we haven't made a decision on the winter sports. So the the wrestlings, the the obvious for us, the the basketballs. Uh, And so uh, and there hasn't been a date set yet to to reconvene with the the Council of Presidents. Uh, But I know as athletic directors, what we're talking about now is is what what does that potentially look like in terms of uh, scheduling uh, some some winter sports? Uh, When do we start? Uh, The NCAA hasn't made a decision uh, yet on basketball uh, in terms of scheduling. In terms of timeline, does it start around Thanksgiving? Does it start shortly thereafter? So some of that is still being determined, and that will help us as we're uh, making recommendations to the the Council of Presidents. Uh, So we're working through all of that. Uh, Once the NCAA comes out with some of its um, recommendations or its uh, decisions in terms of timing for some of the sports, then we'll be able to really uh, analyze that to see what, what fits and what works for us. And then we'll make a recommendation to the, the council of presidents who obviously will ultimately uh, make the decision in our league uh, if we have winter sports and the timing of it. Um, so all of those things uh, are still at play. Uh, but so there's been no decision on the, the winter sports yet. Uh, but again, as we get I think closer to the end of this month and early October, uh, we'll really need to start deciding uh, what we're going to do in terms of timeline and then, Again, hopefully we're in a better place and continue some of the, the positive trends we've seen with coronavirus across the country
1: well you know not only has your world in world everybody's world been kind of turned upside down with the virus but jermaine since we last talked there has been so much going on in this country in the social justice arena you know many Bucknell student athletes they've kind of taken a leadership role in that area talking about anti-racism. The Athletics Department as a whole, too, has launched a diversity, equity, and inclusion council. There are students, coaches, and staff on that council. Um, What about some of the thoughts about what's been going on in this country in that realm? And, And then kind of focus on Bucknell as a whole. How do you think that our athletes and teams have reacted? And is there more that we can continue to do as a department to help promote change, make people more aware, et cetera?
0: Yeah. So in the midst of a, a worldwide pandemic, uh, obviously uh, we've seen what's happening by by way of social uh, justice, uh, largely sparked by the, the George Floyd death. Uh, and there were certainly some before that. And uh, unfortunately uh, there's been a number uh, after that. And so uh, obviously important for, for me as a black man and leading this department, but also just being a black person in in this society. uh, So uh, critically important that we're we're engaged in in this space and our student athletes uh, certainly uh, have been. Uh, I thought they have responded very, very well. And this is really an uncomfortable uh, topic. Uh, And so not everybody needs to have the answers and we certainly don't have them all. And I don't have them all. And neither do our coaches and our student athletes. Uh, But many of our programs responded with either various statements. We had a number of conversations um, amongst our, our teams and our, our coaches, uh, our senior staff. And we, we've been uh, working pretty hard in this space even prior to uh, this with our, our folks on campus, uh, led by uh, Dr. Nikki Young, who um, she's been at this university for a number of years now, but is really engaged in this space. Uh, Maisha Kelly on our athletic side, Senior Associate AD is really leading our our efforts uh, here as well, Uh, but even prior to this we were looking at what we were doing by way of diversity, equity, uh, and inclusion, Uh, but now given everything else that's going on, we have a a particular focus early on for uh, anti-racism, but it all really does fold fold up under diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion, Uh, and so we Keep in mind that the Patriot League also has a commission, and so there's some crossover uh, there with our folks. But it's student athletes, it's faculty, it's staff. Uh, we could certainly play our part. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, we're not going to be able to, to change the world, but you know, hopefully, we can change uh, our community. And if we could do that, that's a that's a start. Uh, I've been clear with our student athletes that I'm less I'm less keen on um, statements and patches and those things. While I think they have their place, I think they're good. Um, The reality of it is, is we we don't have that type of platform. Um, And so what I've been looking for is meaningful, substantive change. Uh, What is it that we're doing? Uh, So, you know, for example, if you want to kneel for the flag, i told our student-athletes that's a decision that they'll have to make, and um, there certainly won't be any athletic consequences for doing that, but uh, that doesn't mean there won't be society consequences, and so part of my job is, is to educate our young people about uh, not everybody's in the same place, not everybody has the same feeling um, on a myriad of, of issues, but uh, so I've really tried to focus on what are we doing for meaningful substantive change as opposed to um, statements and patches and you know that way Uh, and so I think I didn't know it at the time but I I thought what the the Miami Dolphins did over the the last couple of days uh, really gets to what what I'm talking about and so I encourage folks to if you haven't seen it look at the video that they put out uh, in terms of you know this I don't want to call it conflict, but this tension between meaningful substantive change with um, just empty words. And so we're trying to do the the meaningful part, substantive part, uh, and we'll continue to do that where we're doing things in terms of voter uh, registration and education. And uh, regardless of who you end up voting for, we want you to be a part of that process to, to educate you. We have libraries and resources, and uh, teams are doing things on their their own. Um, we're evaluating a whole host of things by way of diversity, equity, inclusion, and so uh, it's been it's been a, obviously an important topic. I hope it doesn't fade as we get back to you know some sort of normalcy. Uh, we all know that you know what we've seen over the last several months has happened. Uh, numerous times over our history and our country. Um, obviously, the country has had a standstill, so had a different lens than they might have otherwise ha- otherwise had, uh, given the coronavirus. But again, as we return to hopefully some sort of normalcy by way of the, the pandemic, uh, hopefully we don't lose sight of kind of this the social justice initiatives and, and norms uh, as well, as we're just trying to uh, fight for uh, social justice, equality for, for all, um, which is important, uh, not only here, but uh, as I say all the time, um, I think black folks and people of color and other rep- underrepresented populations just want to be treated equally. Uh, and I, I don't think that's too much to, to ask. And so we'll we'll do our part as a department uh, from uh, starting with really on campus, we're doing things, but as a department starting with, with me and trickling all the way down to our, our student athletes. And again, we don't have all the answers and nor do we need to have them all, but we'll we'll continue the conversation and we'll continue to try to get better in this space. You
1: know, with all the stuff that's going on, and, and nowadays you do hear that a lot of people will say kids grow up quicker than maybe what they did you know, when you were growing up, Jermaine, definitely when I was growing up a number of years ago. Could you imagine yourself and in school and you were a very good student athlete in your time in football could you imagine yourself dealing with these twin issues all at once and in some cases having some of this put on your back as a student athlete to say you're going to lead the way and i i know what you just said it's not up to just student athletes to lead the way it's for all of us but in both of these instances their worlds have completely turned upside down, probably, haven't they?
0: And they have. And I think um, what you just said and what I alluded to, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, the onus isn't on our student athletes to figure this out. The onus is on – and, again, I love what, they, what they're what they doing. They've been vocal. Um, you know, part of the growing up fast, in my mind, what has changed that is, is just uh, social media and just the access to, to the world uh, that you just – you know, you were able to be sheltered, and you know, in a different way, uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago, than you're just not. You just have so much access. You can see things via uh, social media, uh, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, TV, whatever it may be. Uh, it really gives folks a window uh, at the at their fingertips of what's going on. Uh, but uh, I don't want our student-athletes to feel burdened with this is their responsibility to be educators and they're going to educate adults uh, when many of the adults don't have the, the answers. And so it's our job as leaders to, to figure out you know, what works well in our environment to make progress, and we'll we'll try to do that. But I don't want the onus to be on uh, all of our student-athletes. Again, particularly recognizing that, you know, everybody's not in the same place. And, and what I what I mean by that is, is it's, you know, I think – at least in our department, it's clear to, to me that, you know, given the way our student athletes responded, that you know, Black Lives Matter, they diversity, equity, inclusion is important. Anti-racism uh, is important. Where the divide comes in is, you know, you start kneeling for the flag. Some people have, you know, parents who are first responders or brothers or sisters in the, the military. I mean, the Patriot League, we have Army and Navy in, in our league. And so, um, and that's where I've been try to try to be quite, honest, quite honestly intentional about, you know, let's let's steer away from those things because that's not what this is about. Right. And just as we say that kneeling for the flag isn't about um, uh, disrespecting the troops, we also have to acknowledge that there are people that think it is disrespecting the troops. Right. And so those are the things that are so polarizing uh, that I honestly try to steer away from. Again, if if you want to do, and I'm only using one example to illustrate my point, but again, if that's what you feel strongly about, I'm not going to stop you. Uh, but okay, when we do that, what's next, right? And so we kneel for the flag, we put a patch on, then what? So that's what I keep going back to is the the then what. So yeah, I don't want the onus to be on our, our student athletes. Um, it's a shared responsibility as leaders, but I do want their input. Uh, So very focused on the the then what to make it better. Uh, Yes, that's symbolic. It might bring a conversation. um, But then when the narrative changes to something else, then that's lost and we haven't been left with anything meaningful. So what are those meaningful things that we're doing as a department to change? Uh, And that's what we're going to focus on.
1: Well, there is no doubt in my mind, you know, with your leadership, Bucknell University is going to be at the forefront of all this. Jermaine, I tell you, I really appreciate your time here. I know we had to kind of do it in a socially distanced way because of everything going on, but your insight is just terrific. And I know that all Bucknell fans and families, students, you know, alums, etc. Really appreciate you opening up and helping us to get a little bit better idea of how Bucknell is dealing with a lot of changes that the whole world is going through right now. So again, Jermaine, thank you very much for your time.
0: Well, thanks for having me. And uh, as always, I love doing this and sharing some insight with our, our passionate and loyal supporters who uh, they've just been uh, tremendous through all of this. Uh, again, we we haven't talked about some of the, their support, uh, but uh, it I feel it uh, their passion, and I get many notes, and uh, not only by way of uh, giving, but uh, they really want to see our programs do do very well. And so, anytime I can offer some insight in terms of what we're we're doing, I'm, I'm happy to to do it. And I can't wait for us to get back in person, uh, not only do these interviews, but you know, see all of our, our student athletes uh, competing again, coaches coaching, our fans supporting, our, support, our supporters being here and supporting uh, as well. Uh, it's what we, we all love to, to do and you know, hopefully we'll, we'll be doing it uh, sooner than later. Amen.
1: <laughs> Jermaine, thanks again. Jermaine Truax, the Director of Athletics and Recreation at Bucknell University. That's going to do it for this segment of the You Were Heard It Here podcast. We do invite you to stay tuned, folks. We have a couple more segments coming your way, and the next one will actually be here in just one moment.
0: No time to cook for the big game? Wise Markets is here to help. Stop by the deli to order hand-tossed pizza, rotisserie chicken, and deli salads. Pick up Wise Markets' entertaining guide to order fresh-made platters. Perfect meals for game day.
1: Our next segment of the You Heard It Here podcast is our student-athlete spotlight. Today, I am pleased to welcome football senior linebacker Rick Mottram to the podcast. Hey, Rick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Well, I'm sorry we have to do this socially distance. You're on campus. I'm back on campus, although still working at home. But just for the safety aspect of it, we're actually doing this from my home and your dorms. So <laughs> kind of socially distance here, but we'll struggle through it. How's that? Sounds good. No problem. Well, uh, first off, I have to ask you, when you first started playing football, what drew you to the sport and how old were you?
2: So I started playing in fourth grade. Um, I wanted to play a lot earlier than that, but it it took some convincing on my parents' part. I I would say what drew me to the sport was the camaraderie of the guy playing. A lot of guys my age were playing from kindergarten on, and I was watching them play and really liked the way that they all got along in school
1: and on the field, and I wanted to be a part of that. Oh, that's awesome. Um, did your, did your father or your brothers play or anything, or were you the first to really kind of pick up the sport? So my brother and I had wanted to play for a long time, and then we started the same year. I was in fourth grade. He was in seventh grade. Okay, cool. Of course, you're not only known in high school for your football prowess, but to say the least, you were a stud in the classroom as well. You were one of only five National Football Foundation Chapter Scholar Athletes. Now that is top of the line academic wise, and one of only five in the country. How proud were you to be recognized in that way, you know, obviously for what you do on the field, but also for your smarts too?
2: Yeah, well, that was, that was an amazing award. Um, it was great to be honored in New York with some of the football greats and Peyton Manning and Brian Urlacher were there. Um, I was just proud to represent Bucknell and my high school Allentown and on a big stage. It was very exciting for sure. Yeah. Now you did that. Did you do that after your
1: first year at Bucknell?
2: Yeah. So it was after my first year at Bucknell, it was in December, but it was, it was a high school award. It was one I had applied for in high school and the the ceremony was in December.
1: You mentioned about Manning and Erlacher being there. Did you get an opportunity to speak with any of them or introduce yourself?
2: I did. Yeah. I have some pictures with them. They were great to talk to. They really took the time to talk to all the student athletes and talk about their career and, what they did well and didn't well, didn't do well. So it was great to meet them.
1: You know, sometimes getting good grades in school and playing football, maybe football more than any other sport, but, but any sport, sometimes you get, you know, Oh, you're an egghead. You get put down sometimes (laughs) um, to see a guy like Peyton Manning, who has done it all, or Brian Urlacher, who's done it all. And they aren't afraid to say, I do it in the classroom as well as on the field. Does that make you feel good, and does that can that filter down through you to the next generation of really good scholar-athletes?
2: Yeah, that's the hope. I mean, they were definitely inspiration. I know Peyton Manning won the same award that I did when he was a freshman in college. Um, so it was also great to meet the, the seniors that were winning the, the college-level award at the same time, and I still keep in touch with some of those guys that had been basically at that time they were where I am now. They were just doing their senior year of college um, and they really inspired me seeing them playing division one football and some of them had 4.0's and nuclear physics and crazy things so they really inspired me and I hope I can do the same thing for the younger guys that are coming in want to study engineering or want to do really well academically
1: Oh, I think you have there's no doubt about it and you will as this year goes along too um how long did it take you to adjust to division one college football and and when you were entering Bucknell Did you have any doubts at all that you could play at the division one level?
2: Well, coming in, honestly, out of high school, I thought I was a pretty good player and I didn't have too many doubts, but that changed pretty quickly when I got on campus. (laughs) Um, I saw Mark Piles and Ben Richard were the starting linebackers and I realized I had a really long way to go, Um, but they were, they were instrumental in helping me adjust to the, to the game. And um, they, they quieted those doubts pretty quickly and gave me some confidence and, again, I can, I hope I can do the same thing for the younger guys.
1: Was the adjustment to college football much different and more strenuous, more difficult than say what it was when you first started playing high school football? Yeah, it was
2: definitely more difficult because in high school, there are some pretty good players and there are some not so great players. And as a freshman, you come in and you fall somewhere in between, but, in college, everyone was the best player on their high school team. So you're coming basically at the very bottom. And it was the first time in my life I felt like I was really starting at the bottom, and I had to work
1: for everything I wanted to earn, basically. You mentioned about two of the best linebackers that Bucknell has ever produced, in Biles and Richard. How did they work with you? I mean, did, did they work with you, or did they kind of treat you like a freshman?
2: No, not at all. They worked with us all the time. So we came up as freshmen – Me and Bryda were the the freshman linebackers coming in in July that summer, and Mark and Ben would would take us out on the field. They would take us into the football offices and draw on the board. They were always there to answer any questions. Very helpful.
1: Now, of course, after getting your feet wet your first year, you really started to make an impact during your second season here at Bucknell, Uh, special teams primarily. But, you know, I have to ask you, when – Everybody that comes to Division I college um, and and everybody's pretty much a stud, if you will, on their high school team. Was it difficult for you to make a transition to and maybe some people's eyes lower themselves to starting out as a freshman or, you know, your second year or whatever the case may be in special teams? Or did you say, no, that's actually a good place to start? It was definitely a great place to start. So at that point, it wasn't really difficult
2: to be only on special teams because I was just so happy to be on the field. Um, and it was it was a good way to get my feet wet and get some experience playing against guys that were a lot bigger and stronger and faster than I was at that time. And I knew I had to pay my dues at that level in order to be successful
1: successful at linebacker later on. So then you took the special teams duties that you had Very seriously, you work just as hard, say, in special teams as you have had or as you have worked as a linebacker, I guess, right?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I wasn't too much of a linebacker at that point. I wasn't getting too many reps in games or in practice, but on punt team, kickoff team like that, those were my positions for a couple of years. That's what I focused on.
1: Well, then, of course, your second year, I mean, it it happened rapidly. You did start getting more minutes at linebacker. And then when Simeon Page was injured, man, you just blew up. You stepped up big time. Your first real action, if I could remember correctly, was when you played, when the Bison played at Monmouth, that's in your home state of New Jersey, and you had to replace Simeon in that contest. How did that go? Was that kind of exciting that, and you probably had some family and friends in attendance, I'm going to guess, was that pretty exciting to be able to get that action in that game?
2: Yeah, it definitely was. Um, So I had a lot of friends and all my high school coaches were at that game and I was kind of telling them that I wasn't really going to play. They were just going to watch me run down on cook-off a few times maybe. Um, (laughs) But it was a great experience to get
1: on the field and it was really cool that it was in New Jersey. And, And you did make an impact in that game, but then the next few games after that, you finished with 45 tackles on the year, 43 of those coming in the last five games. How do you feel like you made such an immediate impact? And, and as you said, you didn't really have a ton of game experience and maybe even a ton of refs in practice at linebacker. So how do you feel looking back on it, you were able to make that kind of a big leap?
2: Well, that, that X backer position that I came in and played for Simeon was basically created for Simeon to make big plays. And he did that very, very, very well his first few years. So I learned a lot from watching him, um, freshman and sophomore year. And I like to think that I had maybe half the impact that Simeon would have had if he was healthy for the rest of the games,
1: but it was enough. <laughs> it sure was, I'd say. It, it, did you find that as you were getting prepare, preparing for each game, did you find that some teams were actually just like they did with Simeon to a certain degree, had to scheme for you and what you were bringing <laughs> to the uh, field?
2: Yeah, I think most teams were – we very happy that it wasn't Simeon, that it was this other kid that they hadn't seen yet. Um, but that position being so dynamic, they definitely had to prepare because it could be it could come a blitz from any part of the field and they have to be prepared. And um, I guess you make an impact that way, making them prepare, especially for you. Yeah.
1: Well, speaking of preparation, you know, we know about your smarts in the classroom. Do you feel some of that carries over into your preparation for the teams Buckdale faces each and every week, whether it's film study or, you know, on the field study or whatever the case may be? Can you correlate the two? And does your 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 academic smarts, does that pay dividends on the field too?
2: Definitely, yeah. So I've always told people that football is like my fifth class. I spend probably just amount. month the same amount of time um, we get a binder and we get handouts and we study and we basically do little reports on each guy on the team. So it's the same way that I prepare for a class is the way I prepare for a game, um, except it's a week long. So a game on Saturday is like a test coming up and you really have to study and practice all week if you want to do well.
1: Do you, whether it's in class here at Bucknell or on the field, do you work hand-in-hand hand with other people and try and pass whatever you, you know, your knowledge, et cetera, on to other people?
2: Yeah, all the time. And it's not just passing my knowledge on. It's also getting knowledge from other guys. Everyone has a different perspective. Everyone sees the field a little bit differently. So especially on defense, we communicate all the time. Who knows what, who saw something special, and what can we teach each other to be the best defense possible?
1: What do you feel like are your strong suits? What are your strong suits at linebacker? What do you bring to the table for the Bucknell defense, Coach Manilak? I think communication is a big
2: one. This year with Coach Manilak, I really stepped up and became the signal caller of the defense. Um, you have to communicate with the defensive line in front of you, the DBs behind you, just being making sure everyone's on the same page and and knowing what they're supposed to be doing, even if they kind of forget. Um, the middle linebacker really has to know what everyone's doing, so he can help guys that are that are struggling and make sure everyone's on the same page when the play starts.
1: Now, last year you mentioned about that. Obviously, it was your best season overall, on and off the field. You registered over 100 tackles. That's the first Bison player to do that since 2014, and you were also named Academic All America. What about last year, both in the classroom? with that honor being uh, academic All-American and as well as what you did on the field. Yeah, so
2: last year was really a special year um, for me and for the defense as a whole. I know the record doesn't really show it, but I think we just just communicated really well. We worked really well together. There's a lot of guys in my class that have been together since freshman year. We finally got the chance to all be on the field at the same time. So we just clicked as a unit right away. Um, We had some really, really great games. And then personally, to be honored as an All-American, this was something I, I aimed for since a young age. One of my high school coaches actually was. And when I heard that, I thought it was the most amazing thing. So it was always in the back of my mind. Um, and Peach always, as my roommate, obviously, always kept it in the back of my mind that something to strive for. Um, I didn't think I would actually get it because, I mean, Alex Peach never got it. So I don't know how they gave it to me and not him, but it was pretty special. <laughs>
1: You you mentioned about Alex being your roommate. You guys do it both on the field as well as in the classroom. Was that good to have him as a roommate? Because you know you're you're, you're competitive. Granted, he was uh, playing a different position than you, but you're both very competitive football players. But did you compete in some ways too in in grades <laughs> and so forth?
2: Oh yeah, of course we did. We had a class together last year as we were when we were roommates. So it was really cool to be able to to do all of our work together. And he was a fifth-year senior, so he wasn't taking as hard a course schedule as he usually would. Um, But he was a guy that I liked to spend a lot of time with because he had been through it already. I mean, he graduated. At that point, he had like 396 in biomedical engineering. So anything I could learn from him, um, listening to him talk, we would have some wild conversations you wouldn't expect
1: in a college dorm. But um,
2: he was great to have around.
1: You know, he was up for the Campbell Trophy last year, the academic Heisman, basically. And you also, I'm thinking, you're going to be up for it again this year. What would it mean? And Bucknell's had, um, with Travis Nistley, they the Bison have had representatives in New York City for the Final Ten or whatever in that award. What would it mean to be in the Final Ten, maybe even to win it?
2: Yeah, that's a huge goal of mine also. So being at that banquet freshman year, seeing all the finalists for the William V. Campbell trophy, I just thought maybe one day I could be as smart as these guys and and get to that point. Um, It's it's crazy that we're here already, but I think the work that I've done over the last few years hopefully speaks for itself, and
1: uh, I would be honored to be nominated for that award. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Number one, that you will be, uh, you know, up for the award, and I think you have a great chance of getting it. But before that, uh, I had to talk a little bit more about the end of last year. The second straight year, you had over 40 tackles in the last few games of the season. You know, one of the old mantras, if you will, of football is you never let up steam. You always pour it on, particularly in the fourth quarter. Do you feel like even through the tough? Uh, go that everybody has in Division One college football and all the injuries you have to deal with and so forth that you save your best for later in the season, the last handful of games?
2: Maybe you could say that. I think it also has a lot to do with our schedule towards the end of the year. Um, usually the the earlier games are out of conference, very tough matchups, and at the end of the year, we're, we reach the in-conference schedule, and those are the guys that um, we match up really well with. And we prepare really well with, we play the same Patriot League teams every year, obviously. So we know them, we know their offenses, we know their personnel. So the preparation at the end of the season kicks up hugely, especially we're competing for a Patriot League championship in those last couple games. So everyone was working twice as hard as they ever would have to try to win those games and
1: have an impact. That definitely makes sense. Of course, you were selected as a captain during the spring, this past spring. What did you think about that honor?
2: I was really happy that the guys chose me as a captain. Um, it shows that everything I've done for them and for the program has, has paid off, and they, they appreciate it. Um, so I really appreciate the guys selecting me, and I think they, they chose a really great group of captains. Um, the other three guys, PJ, Brandon, and Simeon, are also great leaders. And um, if we do get a season, it's going to be a special one with,
1: uh, with those guys at the head. You bring up a good point. If we do play a season, um, obviously you're not playing in the fall. None of the Patriot League schools are. In fact, almost every FCS team has decided to wait until hopefully the spring to play the season. Right. How difficult is that to, not have, to have not prepared during the summer for a fall kickoff? And what does that mean to you mentally, physically? Um, you know, Obviously, you're looking forward to the spring, but, but is it tough right now?
2: Yeah, it's definitely weird. So everyone prepared all summer as if we were going to play in, this, in the fall. And then when we finally heard the news that we definitely weren't playing, um, guys' attitudes changed a little bit. Just because when you're preparing for a season, it's a different kind than off-season preparation. So I know guys had to lose a little bit of weight or gain a little bit of weight back to, to go through the off-season. Um, but now that we're back on campus, it's great to be around the guys. I'm, I'm really thankful that we have the opportunity to be on campus still take classes in person and I get to hang out with the guys on the team socially distance as much as possible Um, I know that's not how it is for other Patriot League schools so to be able to be around the guys do voluntary workouts and hopefully in a a few weeks now get some some real workouts in and maybe even practice will be a huge advantage so it's difficult right now to not be playing but we're all happy to be here and and hopefully we can make it work somewhat in the fall.
1: If it turns out that uh, the team does get to play in the spring and you do get to practice as te- as a team in the fall, will it almost feel like a spring practice in the fall? That's the hope, yeah.
2: So we missed out on the spring season last year. We're hoping that these fall practices will kind of simulate the same thing where the younger guys um, get more in-depth training and more of a chance to be on the field with no pressure of having to play games. And it's great for the freshmen coming in the first time their first experience will be in practice. They'll be able to learn the install more than if we had started playing right away. So all around, I don't think it's a terrible thing. Um, We're really bummed that we're not playing now, but in the long run, if we do play in the spring, we're going to be very, very prepared.
1: If you do play in the spring, I mean, there's a lot of conjecture about how it will look. Do you think it would just be, the Patriot league games only, or do you think it might include a few more games? I mean, because your senior year and unfortunately you're missing out on a trip to West point this final year.
2: Right. Yeah. That would have been this week coming up was game week. So we would have been getting ready to play army now. Um, we're disappointed that we won't get that opportunity, but in the spring, um, I've heard rumors that it's going to be an only Patriot league schedule. Um, Hard to say, though. Hopefully we play more games than that, but anything we can get at this point would be great.
1: If you only play Patriot League games, you mentioned before how you you know the Patriot League teams. Obviously, they know Bucknell as well. You know their tendencies and all this stuff. Um, But would it be neat to play only league games and not go into the league portion of the schedule all beaten up? Because, you know, typically, Bucknell plays a tough non-league schedule. And even if you're not badly hurt, you've still got a lot of banging and, and bruises and bumps and etc. And you may not feel 100% going into the most important games on your schedule, in essence, your league games. This year, if it is only league games in the spring, would that be, in some ways, mentally, physically a help?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting point. So every, every school in the Patriot League would be in the same boat. Um, It'd be nice to to have everyone completely healthy and not have any guys on the sideline. But in the same way, um, if we get to practice in the fall, then we'll have a big advantage over other teams that that didn't. So not only will we we be healthy, we'll um, we'll be stronger. We'll be more well positioned in the
1: league. Hopefully that's the idea. Now, I don't want to bring up anything, but uh, do you go into, let's say you do get to practice here in the fall, do you go into it and, and kind of be careful because you don't want to get injured going into your final, what would be if you do play in the spring, your final season?
2: Um, you always want to be careful. Oh, Never looking to get injured. Um, but at this point, we really don't know when our last opportunity to play football will be. So we're going to take every opportunity we get to put the helmet and shoulder pads on very seriously
1: and try to have as much fun as possible. Wow. That's an excellent answer. Excellent answer, Rick. Before I let you go here, I appreciate all your time and for an opportunity for Buckdale fans to kind of get to know you a little bit better. Once you do graduate, do you have any plans already in, in mind what you would like to do? I do actually. So
2: two weeks ago, right before we came to school, I accepted a job offer with Lockheed Martin, Space in King of Prussia, right outside of Philadelphia.
1: Wow, that's awesome! So, how excited are you to be able to start that? I'm very excited. I was
2: I was actually pretty nervous all summer, looking everywhere for a job. I thought most of my fall semester was going to be full of job searches and career fairs and everything. But I got this opportunity through uh, a Bucknell alum that I met last year. Uh, he was very helpful in the process and. Having it done with and out of the way before the semester, so knowing where I'm going to be um, come June of next year is, is really exciting, really big
1: relief. And does that also kind of speak to the Bucknell uh, experience to where an alum, sometimes it could be a football player is if you play football or another sport, or just an alum who you can get a connection with, who helps you get that, that first job, could be that next job. Bucknellians help Bucknellians, basically, don't they?
2: Oh, yeah, big time. Pretty much everyone that I've talked to that has been serious about giving me a job has been related to Bucknell in some way, whether it's a, a parent or an alumni. So the, the people really look out for each other. And I, I tell this to Rick Fruits all the time. We have a, a great LinkedIn page for the Bucknell football team and the alumni to connect. And we're always trying to do things um, as the leaders on the team to, to set the younger guys up and give them opportunities to learn more about the industry that they want to go into and meet alumni in that
1: area. So there's definitely a great alumni base. That's so awesome. Congratulations on getting that locked up. As you said, that's one less headache for you, buddy. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. <laughs> Well, hey, Rick, man, it was great again getting uh, getting an opportunity to speak with you. I so much appreciate your time. And I look forward to seeing you here in the fall in in kind of a a spring practice, in the fall practice. (laughs) And then I really (laughs) look forward to having a season in the spring. I wish you all the best. Stay healthy and go bison. Thanks, Doug. Appreciate it. All right. Senior linebacker, Rick Bontra and that will wrap up our student athlete spotlight we do invite you to stay tuned because our next you Were heard it here podcast segment will be coming up in just one moment
0: no time to cook for the big game wise markets is here to help stop by the deli to order hand tossed pizza rotisserie chicken and deli salads pick up wise markets entertaining guide to order fresh made platters perfect meals for game day
1: Welcome to our next segment on the You Heard It Here podcast. In this segment, we're going to be speaking with a former football player for the Bison as Steve Zarlinski joins us. Hey, Steve, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me tell you what i know you and i had an opportunity to speak here a couple of years ago we had you on as a halftime guest unfortunately because of timing we ended up having to cut that interview shorter than we wanted so this is a great opportunity to catch up with you again but to kind of go in a little bit more in depth than we have all the time we need to spend so let's take you back if you don't mind to your high school
3: days you played football in high school of course did you play any other sports uh, yes. i uh, got to give you a little rundown first. I actually went to uh, two different high schools. I went to Kultman High School, which is about 45 minutes from Bucknell, a small high school. It's in the heart of the coal region. There I played football, basketball, and baseball. Ironically, that's the only sports programs that the school had. They had JV varsity freshman football, JV varsity basketball, and varsity baseball. And they were coached by one individual. So that was all the sports we had in the high school, and we had one individual, one gentleman who coached all of them. And ironically, we actually played our varsity football games on the Thursday night because uh, all the big schools in the area, Schmolke, Carmel, Pottsville, all powerhouses, Cole Township, Berwick, played Friday night. So the small schools in the area, which were about five of us, Played each other on Thursday night and we, we had a pretty good schedule except the next four or five games had to be played against the big schools and we weren't so successful. So that I was stayed there till my junior year. And that's when the state was combining the small school districts into the larger school districts. And I think they did that to about 50 schools statewide. So I had, I actually went to Mount Carmel, which was a football power and my senior year and there I only played a football and baseball. I wasn't really good at basketball, to be honest with you.
1: But So was that, I was just going to say, was that a big step up then from
3: Coltmont to Mount Carmel? Oh, or yeah.
1: did you find Did you find it wasn't as big of a step as what you
3: imagined it would be? Oh, it was a tremendously big step. Uh, Coltmont mine graduated uh, 40, 50 students. Uh, when I graduated at Mount Carmel, the next year it was 212. And Mount Carmel was a statewide football power. Uh, Kultman actually didn't even, uh, have films for their games. And it was really short on equipment. Sometimes if you were in the, in a football game, you had it. And somebody came in for you, you had to give him your helmet. And, uh, <laughs> this is the truth. And when the freshmen of JV played, there was no helmets for the varsity because they went to their games. So it was, uh, believe it or not, it, that it was a gigantic step for me. I, I never would have been able to be successful, in in where I am today, if that jointure didn't take place.
1: That's interesting. Well, d- was it also difficult to learn? You know, to go to a new school and to have to kind of learn some new friends. Although I'm sure some of the cult mind <sighs>
3: students you were aff- uh, acquainted with probably followed you there to Mount Carmel as well. Oh, they they had no choice. They all followed us. I mean, it, it was a good transition because mainly with uh, football, you know, practice really started before school. So you got to know the football players right off the bat. And then like, you know, two, three weeks later, then you then regular school classes start. So the football program was really a good transition. And I, and there I, once I, I actually played uh, every offensive, defensive tackle, and I never came out of the games at Mont Carmel. So I was, I I had a good year at Mount Carmel High School, and I really uh, benefited from it. So, wait a sec.
1: You said that you really didn't feel, you thought it was a huge step up, but if you played both sides of the ball, uh, it sounds to me like you
3: fit in pretty well there at Mount Carmel. Uh, yes, I did. Uh, uh, it was a good program for me to go to. And I now, never obvious- knew about I never knew about, you know, how many coaches actually came to recruit there and and how successful they were because they were state powerhouse. They they were state champs once once that program got started. I mean, uh, Jazz Demnick was there for years and years, the football coach, and he was known statewide. He's in the State Hall of Fame for his coaching and playing and everything.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of the coal region schools, of course, were state powers at that time. But like you said, Mount Carmel was near the top of the list year in, year out. Um, You mentioned how much it affected your play uh, to be able to go to Mount Carmel and to be able to produce the way you did. Was it during that season, that one season there at Mount Carmel that you started to think, hey, you know, once I graduate from high
3: school, I might be able to play college ball. It really started uh, as soon as that season was over because the college, all the recruiting was was done by coaches visiting the schools. I mean, if we had game films, you had one game film and you really couldn't send it out. If you send it out to one school, you might wait a week or two to get it back. So a lot of the assistant coaches would would make their their routes around the coal region to visit the various schools. When I got done, uh, long story short, I was approached, I would think, by seven or eight colleges. I had several visits. Um, I really narrowed it down to four schools at that time, uh, Buffalo, Colgate, Alfred University, and Bucknell. And I looked at Alfred University because I grew up in a small town. On the same block was a student who played, got a basketball scholarship. He graduated a year before I did at Alfred. And I would go up there, pick him up at times, go up with his parents and see some of the games and. Alfred had a very good football program, and I really enjoyed the, the head coach there. So finally it came down to, uh, to s- signing with Alfred University. At, then we can get into, uh, you know, how did I end up at Bucknell? It's, that's, that's the interesting part of the story. <laughs> well, speaking of which, that's exactly
1: what I wanted to kind of move into. How did you end up at Bucknell? It was interesting, huh?
3: Well, I my visit to campus was really in February of 1965. And as I entered Davis Gymnasium, and one of the coaches met me there, I don't remember which one, I think it might have been Billy Yeomans at the time, Bob O'Dell was literally walking out the other set of doors and saying his goodbyes. And Bob wow. O'Dell was the head coach. And literally, we passed in the lobby of uh, Davis Gymnasium. Wow. So he was, he was on his way to Penn, and I was coming in to look at Bucknell. So when I had the interview, everything went good. We, you know, they put you through a, a basketball game, see your moves and everything else like that. And I thought it went very well. And they said, you got to get your verbal scores up a little bit, and then we'll, then we'll see where we go from there. So I actually took a uh, SAT prep course taught by a Bloomsburg professor. I think it might have been $25, and he had a class with six, eight, or ten of us. And I did very well when I took the SATs. I actually went up uh, almost 100 points in verbal and half that number in math. Math was never a question because I was very close to 700. So I got the results that looked pretty good, and I sent them down to Bucknell like you're supposed to, and I never heard anything at all. So I just figured, hey, as I eliminate the other schools, that's when I settled in at uh, going to Alfred University. Now, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, <laughs> my dad had a uh, Texaco gas station that he opened up in 1947, the same year I was born. So I spent a lot of time working at the garage. I was going through school, and I had an older brother. He did the same thing. And I was working on a Saturday night, early in the evening. And some of the people will know, I don't know if you ever heard the term Carl the barber.
1: Oh yes. Carl the barber. He was, he was famous there on the Bucknell campus.
3: Well, you know, where his barbershop was by the old bookstore tracks hall. Yes. And uh, he actually lived in Coltmont, and he was doing a, a cement project at his house. And he came down and needed uh, some kerosene, for his safety lantern, which was a big black ball with like a little torch. It looked like a, a cannonball. And I sold him 15 cents worth of kerosene. And he talked, and he said, Steve, how come you're not going to Bucknell? He said, I know you were down and things were good. I said, Carl, I sent down my college boards again. I never heard anything from them. He said, okay. And that was the end of that. The next day I got a call from Carl, and he said, there's a new football coach down there, Carol Huntress. He wants to meet with you as soon as possible. And I, he, I, he said, could I be down there Monday morning early? I said, yes, that's no problem because uh, he was going on vacation. So I came down in a coat and tie, sports jacket. I think it's the same sports jacket I wore for my senior pictures in high school. It might have been the only one I had. <laughs> so I, go, I go down there. My mother goes down with me. Dad was working at the gas station. And he says, talks to me, seemed real good. He said, you bring films with you. I said, no. I said, Carl, just Carl the barber said, just go down and see Coach Huntress. And he said, can you go back and get films? I said, sure, I'll try. So I went back to Joe Diminik's house, Josh Deminick, got some film that he had there, took it down, and it must have been 90, 95 degrees, and I went down in Bermuda shorts and some kind of shirt. He looked at the films. Had, had, my mom did come down at a time, the second time. And he said, go up to the admissions office and don't talk to anybody else but Dick Skelton. So I did that in July, talked to Dick Skelton. And I know we had a meeting then with Fitzwalling, And next thing you know, for 15 cents worth of kerosene, I switched to Bucknell University. And that is the truth. <laughs> that is so – and Carl the Barber had to be part of this too. Oh, yes. Yeah. So it wouldn't have been for Carl the Barber. I mean, it never would have happened.
0: Never. Well, do Carl, you think – if
3: Bob O'Dell
1: would have stayed as the head coach, do you think you might have been contacted by Coach O'Dell's staff? Um, or do you think that uh, the way things worked out, it may not have worked out that way if Coach O'Dell would have stayed at Bucknell?
3: I think if Coach Odell was, was there, I'm sure he recruited – I mean, I'm sure he knew all the, all the athletes that were coming for visits, okay? And I think the transition of some of the coaches staying, not staying, and a new coach, Carol Huntress, coming in, I'm, I'm sure there was some – you know, just some breakdown in communications or whatever until he got the ball rolling. I knew I knew I became great friends of some of the coaches there, Rod Oberlin, who I'm sure you heard of, and Bob Despirtu, who then left and was very successful at Slippery Rock. So I I just think it was a transition of one coach leaving and another coach coming back, and, and the downtime in between there. Well, um, obviously you you were able to make it into Bucknell. You
1: mentioned your board scores were great, and you then played for uh, the Bison on the football field. Different era, different time. Bucknell football was still good then. I mean, obviously, you're coming off of the time where Gocho Dell was there. Um,
3: Bobby Marks, was Bobby one of your teammates? Yes, Bobby Marks. Uh, I remember Tom Mitchell. Uh, he was a senior when I was a freshman. And, you know, freshmen weren't eligible uh, for the varsity. And we were like the practice squads for – we actually had, had it harder because – Let's say the defense would practice very hard on a Tuesday, so we were the offensive scout team, and then the next day the offense would run, so then we were the defensive uh, team to oppose them. So it was pretty hard freshman year, plus all the transition that you go to and everything else like that. Did you learn a lot of uh, that freshman year, even though you didn't
1: get to play in varsity games, did you learn a lot about football even more
3: than you already knew when you played at Mount Carmel? Oh yes, the uh, the techniques that are the fundamental tech techniques that you just keep reviewing and reviewing and reviewing. What foot to start on? What side? You know, do you do you give them the forearm with your left arm or your right arm? And and all the defenses because uh, even even when a, when Huntress was there, we never stayed at home, especially on defense. I mean, we moved around because of our size and quickness. I mean, I was playing defensive tackle at college at. Uh, it had in a the, in the program that I was 220. Actually, I was down to about 210. So we never stayed home. I mean, very, very seldom. We were stunting all over the place. Obviously, that
1: first year, you learned a good bit. And it took, I guess, your game really took off your second year. Talk a, a little bit about how you grew as a player, you know,
3: in those last three years. Well, I started. I, I started I, – my sophomore year, I didn't start the first game – the first or second game, and then we were playing uh, Temple, and the, and the starting defensive tackle got hurt, and I came in and filled in for him. And that was a terrible game for us because we lost 82-28, and we Ooh. really got – yeah, really got spanked. So there were a lot of changes made on defense, and I was moved to starting uh, defensive tackle. They moved the other st- – Tackle to the injured. The injured guy came back, and he started. But they moved an all-conference center uh, tackle, Jim Henn. They moved him to middle guard. So from then on, I played. Uh, I started all the games. Maybe one or when I was sick or something. And did you feel like you
1: gained not only experience but you gained confidence as those years went
3: along? Oh yeah, I mean I I. T- I think I got better and better as as the years went on, and I made player of the game uh, all the three seasons. Like they'd have an offensive player of the game, a defensive player of the game, and I know I won that several times in each of the years I played.
1: Now, do you have any uh, special moments? Uh, anything that comes out in your mind that happened while you were a football player at Bucknell? Any any games that immediately pop into your
3: into your mind, saying, "Wow, that was that was something I'll never forget." Yeah, it's. Uh, I have some really good memories, and I'll tell you the the best memories I have before I get into the games are some of the people that that I surrounded playing with. I mean, I talked about Jim Hen, people that were recruited by Bob O'Dell that came in, you know, later years played for Huntress. I mean, we had some great individuals: Jim Hen, uh, Gene DePew, Tom Fallon, Ludwig Doviak, Giacomelli, Lou I mean, a lot of people knew Bobby Marks and, and Sam Haverlack, and they were true hall of famers, but there were so many just common guys, Mike Vincent, Lou Gallia, Terrace Onishenko. I mean, just so many guys that bring back good memories. Some of the games that another part of my experience with the games is I was only 45 minutes away. So I had a lot of people coming to the games. Uh, my, my father actually died between my freshman and sophomore year. So my mother would come with then my girlfriend, who was my high school sweetheart, who I eventually married. And even while I was at Bucknell, the later years, I was married, and she helped staying at home and helped and went to work. But I had so many people that would come to the games because, at that time, if you were a sophomore, you got two tickets; a junior got three tickets; a senior got four game tickets. Well, a lot of a lot of the players' parents lived far away, and they couldn't make all the games. So I was always getting ample number of tickets to give out to people that were coming. So that that was a real high point of my career. I mean when I came out of the locker room after the game, there were there were always people waiting there. You know, and that, that was a high point. But some of the games that I really remember is I talked about the Temple game where we got beat 82 28 and then we played them home. And I think the score was something like twelve or thirteen to eight which, which was a really competitive game for Bucknell to play Temple. And then the following year we went to Temple and we beat them. And I think that score was like uh, 28, 27, something like that. And and that game was actually televised by a Philadelphia TV station back to my hometown. So I had a lot of people watching that game. I think the Temple game was like 28, 29, to 26. And uh, the best hit of my college career happened in that game near the end of the Temple game. The second string, their second string quarterback was in the game and it was late in the fourth quarter, I believe. And he rolled out to pass and I was coming from the opposite direction and he never saw me. And I hit him as hard as I could hit anybody. And that's when quarterbacks didn't have the flak jackets and things. And as he was throwing the ball, he threw the ball up into the stands. and It was actually on the Bucknell side of the field. And that was a third down play, and I remember we stopped them on a fourth down play. And the greatest feeling we had coming off that field, they were standing up cheering because when I hit him, the ball went up into the stands. <laughs> now, where, where, was, where did Temple play their home games at that time? Oh, the regular, the regular Temple Stadium. So, not a uh, good, not a good part of town because I got friends with like the bus driver and this and that, and he would say. Uh, I said, where'd you watch the game at? Usually there's the lounge. He said, I just stayed in my bus. It was parked right on the street in in downtown Philly. But it was a
1: very special moment and a great win for the Bison, right?
3: Yeah. And then other other good times, uh, again, in Philly, when we went to uh, play Penn at Franklin Field, and we stayed in the visitor's locker room, and and I actually got Lou Grossa's locker because they'd have the, the name of the visiting team up on adhesive tape. And he had his name on it, and I think I actually tore that adhesive tape off and brought it home with me. And we won <laughs> that game. We won that game uh, down here when we played them. I think it was twenty-eight, twenty-seven. Another great game for us. Did we have some low points? Yes, we did. We had some some games the offense would click, and then the defense would fall apart. And the other times, the defense would play good, and the offense wasn't productive. One of the things that I'll also remember uh, was the Cornell game that we lost up there. And a couple of the guys were standing outside the bus, and I said, boy, we're going to get really chewed out when they see the game films, you know, because they see the game films sometimes even at night after the game or early Sunday morning. And the camera guy, I think it was Paul Laird or something, he said, Steve, don't worry about it. He said, the film broke early in the game, and I didn't know it, so there's no film of the game. (laughs) You were saved. (laughs) Yeah, we were saved. Another low point was, and I don't know who did this, we had a a scrimmage uh, up in Yale, and usually when we went up that far, like we played Harvard, Maine, Rhode Island, we would fly from Williamsport up to the games. Well, since that was a scrimmage, we took a bus, and we stayed in some dormitory on campus. It, It was like must have been the top floor of an old dorm, and it was an open space, and they had just bunk beds laid out in there. And uh, we got beat up pretty good, and Calvin Hill was their fullback the senior year, and he just chewed us up. And I'm thinking, why the hell didn't we Scrimmage Bloomsburg or Susquehanna or somebody close by? And that was a miserable, long ride home. We had a couple players that were hurt, and, you know, it was just a moan and long bus ride. I mean, that's that's just some things that I remember. Uh, well, Calvin Hill tore up a few people in his career. Yeah, I think I tackled him one time on a on a rollout or some type, and I really didn't tackle him. I just think he ran over me and, and tripped. You know, because I remember <laughs> my head bouncing backwards. I, you know, but that's that's some of that's some of the highlights. I'm mean, sure there are quite a bit more, but what can I tell you?
1: Well, you mentioned, of course, the big win at Franklin Field against Penn, and that was when Coach Odell was still coaching at the University of Pennsylvania, yes. wasn't it? Yes, yes. So, so obviously, was- he didn't. You didn't get a chance to play for him while at Bucknell, but I'm sure he probably spoke with some of the players because he knew many of them on the team. I'm sure.
3: Yeah, I had, I had no real contact with them other than passing them in the hallway.
1: That's interesting. Well, after
3: you graduated from Bucknell, what did you end up doing, Steve? Well, I had—I was an education major, and I was actually a math statistics major. And I took a couple of accounting courses and some business courses to fill my schedule up. And I was a good—and I was married at that time, so I was a good recruit for uh, train, management training programs. And I had some job offers, some very fine schools. Uh, Eastman Kodak, General Electric, Arco, uh, Goodwill Goodwill Tire, and another tire uh, company out in Akron, Ohio. Uh, so I, I was a good recruit, and I looked at it. I went to all those interviews. But then I ended up going back to uh, Mont Carmel High School. I taught math there, algebra, ninth and 10th grade for four years, and also coached with Jazz Demetick at Mont Carmel for those four years. And then at the age of 25, I became junior high principal in the same district that I actually graduated from. And then the next year at age 26, I became a high school principal. So bottom line is I became junior, senior high school principal. And I I was in those positions for four years for teaching and then 10 years as administrative, either high school principal, junior high school principal, some combination because we're going through building programs and stuff like that. So that's where I went. And then after that, in 1983, I I left to become a superintendent at Brockway Area School District, which is just off of 80, right above Dubois. And after 26 years in that same position, I retired in 2009.
1: Wow. Well, go
3: back if you will to your Mount Carmel days when you were,
1: you know, the working your way up before you became principal. Was it almost surreal to
3: be working at the same place you went to school? Oh yeah. I mean, uh, I was very fortunate to get that job because if I didn't go back teaching in Mount Carmel, I would have taken the other positions. One of the one in business training. Uh, that's the only. That's the only school district that I looked into. Whether it was loyalty or dedication. And I, I love coaching football, and I, I loved it.
1: So when you went to Brockway, was that a really good career decision for you? I mean, to be a superintendent, obviously, that's uh, top of the line.
3: It was a smaller school district than Mont Carmel. And uh, whenever you take a new job like that, there's always hesitation. But I had a, a great career here. All my kids, uh, I was a firm believer to live in the school district that you were working in. Uh, And my kids enjoyed it. All my kids graduated uh, from the high school. Brockway Glasses was the second largest glassmaker in the world, and their corporate offices were in Brockway. So it was like corporal uh, management people in a top-notch company and also rural PA. So it was a great mixture, and it it turned out to be a great move for me. All my kids were successful from graduating there. Two of them went to Bucknell, which I'll get into. Another one went teaching. So it was a great move for me. And I, I never I never really applied to another school district once I was here. That's interesting. Well, what do you feel like you learned at Bucknell,
1: both playing football as well as, you know, in the academic side, that helped you in your career in education for all those years, both at Mount Carmel and then later at
3: Brockway? Well, the one biggest area that I'd have to say is time management, uh, you, you've got to know how to uh, – how to, you, you, there's no special classes given to the athletes at Bucknell. You've got to earn everything you have, not by what you do on a basketball court or football field or baseball or any of the uh, other sports. You've got to earn for what you have. And when you – when you're – An aid recipient at Bucknell and an athlete, you have to work quite a bit in the cafeterias. So most of the football players, basketball players ended up working in the cafeterias. So the biggest thing has to be is is time management. You've got to learn. you've You've got to know what's expected. And you have to learn the process to be successful. And my GPA improved every semester that I was there. I made Dean's List last three out of four semesters uh best thing though is time management because there's a lot of distractions got to go on in that university, you know, which is good and bad. But uh, there, you just got to learn how to do the thing, do the right thing at the right time. Uh, and you mentioned before,
1: not only did you graduate from Bucknell, but you have a lineage of family members who
3: went to Bucknell and graduated from Bucknell. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I was the first one in my entire family from my mom and dad's side to ever go to college. Uh, I ended up with two degrees from Bucknell. I I got my bachelor's degree in education. I got my master's degree in public uh, administration. I took 15 more additional credits to get my principal papers from Bucknell. And to get my superintendent papers, I actually had to go to Lehigh University because Bucknell didn't offer that. Well, that had to be tough. <laughs> well, it was more the ride than anything else. I mean, uh, but my son, Steve, who lives above Detroit, he has two degrees in Bucknell and in, in civil engineering, and he works, uh, flies all over company, uh, all over, all over the United States, and he's a, he deals mainly in hazardous waste removal. I have a daughter, Lori, who graduated with a BS degree in accounting, As soon as she graduated, she started working for Deloitte and she's now a partner at Deloitte and she married a chemical engineer from Bucknell and wow. then she also has a daughter that's a sophomore now at Bucknell and she's uh majoring in biomedical engineering huh. uh, so it's 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 really awesome and i also have a niece and nephew my sister's uh son and another one graduated from Bucknell and then I have a daughter, Susie. She was our youngest, and uh, she actually followed me in education and became an elementary teacher. She has her bachelor's and master's, and she also has her principal certification. And I'm sort of glad she didn't go to Bucknell because uh, you could you could go to Clarion University, the State University, a lot cheaper than you could go to Bucknell. And actually, <laughs> one, one year, uh, it's hard to believe, but my son was in his master's program, my daughter, was at Bucknell. So I had two at Bucknell and one at another school. And that, that was tough. You know, that's, that, that was tough. I had three, three kids in college at the same time, but it worked out really well for us. Thank God for my wife, who I was my high school sweetheart. And I married her even before I graduated. And, uh, I mean, she, she helped out tremendously and uh, we've been married for like 52 years now. And, uh, we we were just so involved in Bucknell, especially having our own tailgates there when when the when the kids were in school, it just just worked out so good for all of us. I am truly blessed.
1: Obviously, this year is so different, and you being retired, maybe it maybe it is, maybe it isn't affecting you as much as it would be for someone who's still working, but. If you were a player this year and your fall, you you let's say your senior year, you're getting ready for it, and you aren't going to be playing in the fall, you're hoping to play in the spring. How do you think you would
3: adjust to that, Steve? I I have mixed feelings on that because I I understand what what they're going through. I I understand. Uh, I enjoyed uh, your podcast when you were talking to the mainly the. The bucknell coaches in the spring and uh, it hurts it hurt me so bad to see what happened to bucknell girls basketball program i mean one game away from being the ncaa's uh the boys team missed it by that one game at the end of the season and to hear those coaches talk where they were all over the country spring training uh, i think coach achini's wife was where in california with tennis players and that that had to be really be devastating for them and Uh, you know, I do realize they have another year of eligibility, but, you know, a lot of these kids won't you know, they're not going to move up to the next level. They're not going to be recruited to play in the pros and everything else. So that really took a lot away from them from all their years. Your senior year should be your best year. And even in the high school level now, there's some schools are having it. Some are. not I I read an article today where the Penn State medical doctor was saying how, how, A third of the ones who have the COVID-19 also have uh, some level of inflamed heart. And nobody knows what the true long-term effects are. And it's it's a no-win situation. You can plan, 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 and five minutes later you hear a report from the governor or somewhere else that just makes everything different and it's just you just don't know how to really handle it it's it's a problem especially when you have so many people dying across the country and so many families going through turmoil it's it's am i glad that i'm retired and not going through that yes but there's always other things going on nothing to this level but uh, and the people downtown would know that i'm always available you know i'm still involved in some programs there Uh, so i'm available to help them out but it's just a tough situation and i and i understand that and appreciate the work that they're doing
1: yeah it really is a tough situation and i guess these young people are probably going to know as well as any college students who have graduated in your time my time whatever how to deal with adversity because this is an adverse time for all of them isn't it
3: oh it's it's monumental there's there's no there's no right wrong answer or anything else like that it's just it's just an overall very very tough situation
1: Well, uh, speaking of which, you have so many people, yourself included, who have graduated from Bucknell. If you were going to give some advice for anyone considering Bucknell as a location, either to go to college just as a student or possibly to be a football player and student
3: as you were, what kind of advice would you give them, Steve? Well, one thing I'd like to say before I address that is, you know, one of my concerns is that the high cost of Bucknell University, and I hope it doesn't Prevent some students who are worthy of that type of an education not to be able to apply. So I would mainly stress to anybody: don't look at necessarily the cost, even if that's a major obstacle for you, because there is money out there. There, there's resources out there. I mean, I was blessed to come out of Bucknell with, uh, with really no, no, no debt. I mean, I didn't have any student loans or anything else like that. But that's that's not the case now. People are coming out. With owing oh, over a hundred thousand dollars, I mean that that's so realistic. But Bucknell is a be- you know it's a great it's a it's a great university. It, it's a beautiful campus. You won't find I think any nicer than I know. It has a, it's a safe environment. It's a great location. I mean I, it's just it's just a great university. And I know some of the kids. You know Dick Skelton used to tell me, and I'll talk to, talk about him in a little bit. He would say, "Do you want to hear crickets at night or sirens?" And that, that, that really sinks in when you think about it. I mean, it's just a safe environment. Uh, for football players, um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, could I have gone to a bigger school? Possibly. Would I have played as much? Maybe. But you don't realize how much, till you're out of it, how loyal the alumni are to Bucknell graduates. Uh, my daughter, like I said, graduated. Started working for Deloitte immediately she now comes back to campus and recruits every year because they know what type of students Bucknell has. And, and uh, across the country, they, people want Bucknell gradu- graduates. And it's, it's just – and Bucknell takes such tremendous uh, support for their athletic programs. And I, just don't, I don't mean the major ones, the football, the basketball. I mean, it goes down to the cross country. The, uh, I mean, they're running programs with track and field. And here, like the tennis, the tennis thing when that uh, COVID hit, they were out in uh, they were out in California, I think. The baseball team and all the softball teams were down south. I mean, they cut they cut no corners. It's they they respect the athletes and they really take care of them. Boy, yeah,
1: truer words have not been spoken. You are right. I've been so blessed to be at Bucknell for over 20 years now. And you know what, it, with all of your children who did graduate from there, nieces, nephews, and obviously you having graduated from there, Steve, you know that Bucknell
3: is a very special place, don't you? Oh, it's outstanding. It's, it's just outstanding. You know, one that uh, reminded me to touch base with uh, when, I, when I recruited Bucknell was Dick Skelton. Uh, yes, I know you I'd, wanted to
1: talk about Dick.
3: And I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about Dick Skelton. I know he passed away just last month in August, and uh, what a fine individual. I mean, when I talk about the the players and and, and the coaches and all, but i got to mention Dick Skellon, uh in admissions, Ellis Hartley, who was the treasurer and helped the kids on scholarship, and I even mentioned Mabel Plumacher, not as a joke, but she was the food service director and took care of all the athletes like nobody ever took care of. But with Dick passing away, he was a great friend. I mean, he was he was a friend for 55 years. I mean, he, he was just a great person. Um, it's a great loss not only to his wife, Cindy, and his two daughters, Melissa and Julie, and their family, but to the entire Bucknell community and also the community of Lewisburg. I mean, he was an outstanding supporter. I mean, when I came back for the golf tournaments, the annual football golf tournaments, I mean, I always played with Dick Skelton and Ellis Harley. And you know, it's it, he was. I visited him at Florida. I danced at his daughter's wedding. He came to one of my daughter's weddings here. He was. How can I sum it up? He was truly one of the good guys. And he, him and his wife were lifetime supporters of Bucknell and all the athletic programs. I, I remember coming back to Bucknell and be in the rain and, and Dick and Cindy to be. I know where they'd be sitting. Uh, and he was just a true, true Bucknellian, and Ellis the same way. They both graduated from Bucknell, and they both come back to serve, but that's a great loss to me and also to his family, and, and like I said, to Bucknell and, and Lewisburg. Amen, and, Steve. I, I have to, to agree with in and Fitz Walling, too. You mentioned Fitz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, i I just I just had a special bond with those people. I mean— Uh, through my high school years and writing recommendations for uh, kids from our school wanting to go there. And uh, like I said, I've known them for 55 years and who would think that that's how it would start from just meeting them in July to get admitted to the university. And I I don't know how many kids actually in the whole career got, got accepted to Bucknell in July i mean that's i was a a hard-working rough kid from the coal region and they turned me into the man i am today and i'm very very grateful to them and proud to be associated and call those people my friends well you know one word i think best describes bucknell
1: and then a lot of words can describe bucknell it's an excellent institution of higher learning however i think one word probably best describes it you've kind of alluded to this steve family when you were here and and even up you know all these years later when you think of Bucknell it is a family atmosphere isn't
3: it oh it's it's unbelievable I mean even from the professors I mean sure you'd have a tough professor and you know maybe he wasn't so not social but as caring and helping as you would want but mostly all the professors I had if you had a problem or you know you know they could help you out. I remember one time I got I got sick for about four days at Bucknell, and it was during the season, and I couldn't. You know, I just wasn't ready to play the game that that Friday, and I, I still had to play it. But I mean, sometimes you're you're dead tired. I mean, uh you, you can't spend the hours that you need to accomplish some of the things, and you could you could go to them, and you know they'd give you a break. They they knew if if you were truly in trouble or just trying to circumvent the system. I mean, family is a great, great word, and I've carried that through my family. I mean, I tailgated there for years, especially when the kids were in school. Uh, I miss the place. I miss the place. Well, we got to get you back there. You make sure I know it may be in the spring when the football
1: season happens, but we hope to see you back on campus just as often as you can make it, Steve. I appreciate that. And I certainly appreciate your time here today. And I wish you and your family all the best. And, and family is kind of what this is all about. And I'm guessing that this is the best way to end our conversation today is to thank you and your family for being part of Buckville's family.
3: Well, thank you very much, Doug. I really enjoyed it. And I, I appreciate the work you do. I, I watched some of your uh, end of the games uh, YouTube the good, the good shot, I think that was against Navy where you went ballistic and uh, <laughs> I, I, I was going to bust you up a little bit. I was going to send you a seatbelt so you could wear so you wouldn't at a football game, you wouldn't jump out of the the window. You you do, add, <laughs> you, do add, you do add excitement to the program. I told you that. I mean, even when i listening to it on the radio, I mean, it's, it's. You add excitement to it, especially when oh. you when you go with uh, Pat Flannery, who really knows the game and mm-hmm. understands the game. What a backup to be a color guy! I mean, for for you on that show, I mean, it's just incredible. Oh, I'm so blessed, Steve, to not only have the
1: expertise of Pat, but you know uh, Kevin Hurton, football, and everybody else. It truly is a family here at Bucknell. And, and again, I appreciate so much. Appreciate your time and. Being able to kind of fill us in for those folks who may not have remembered Bucknell back in the years of Dick Skeleton or, you know, as you said, Gene Dupuy when he played football at Bucknell and, and, of course, when you played. So I appreciate your time.
3: All right. Thank you very much.
1: All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the You Heard It Here podcast. We do invite everybody to listen to every episode of the only podcast devoted strictly to Buckdale University Athletics. So, till next time, so long, everybody. You've been listening to You Heard It Here. Stay tuned for another episode coming soon.